0: Hey guys, I'm Lead Pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com. Or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Um, I was wondering, you guys, uh, I often start by asking a question. And I was wondering um, if you guys have ever felt like these disciples uh, must have felt in the story that we've read today. Disciples who just didn't have what it took to... See the healing through. I mean, am, am I the only one that's even a little bit scared at times to come to God and ask for healing? Have you ever felt like that? Even like a little bit scared to put God, you know, to the test, so to speak, to, to, to like, if I ask, he, it might not happen. And then what happens if it doesn't happen? Do you know what I'm saying? I remember feeling a lot like that when my parents were sick and thinking to myself, like, you know, do I have the faith to really go for it in prayer? What if God doesn't answer the way that I, that I think that he ought to? Anyway, I think that uh, we've all been in that situation where we've prayed for something or we've tried to see healing happen in some way or the other. And so I think maybe we can relate uh, with that just a little bit. Um, you know, I think this story, although it is a healing story, a story about a, a demon-possessed boy who receives healing, we've seen Jesus do that before up, up to this point in the book of Matthew. But I think what this story is really about Is not the healing of the boy, but it's really about the disciples and their inability to heal. And it it brings us to this key question. Well, why couldn't they heal? What was wrong with the disciples or what was wrong with their process? Why couldn't the disciples heal? I'm thinking to myself, these are the 12 disciples. They can't even heal this man's son. What chance do I have to see healing uh, come? You know, in our story last week, we had uh, Tim Vink with us, and I I thought it was quite interesting that we had the biggest, brightest-haired, lightest-skinned man I could possibly find to talk about the transfiguration, the (laughs) glowing story of Jesus on the mountaintop. If you were here, you know how big Tim is, how bright he is, Uh, but uh, we're we're going from the, the mountaintop to the valley floor today as Jesus has descended down from this mount of transfiguration. And uh, at the mountaintop, we saw a proud heavenly father moment. And it was there that we heard uh, God the Father say, this is my dear son, listen to him. In today's passage, we find ourselves with Jesus on the valley floor. It's a good reminder that God is the God of the mountaintop experience Don't we all long for those mountaintop experiences where we feel really close to God, where God is not just present, he's bright, he's glowing. But as we all know, we don't just need Jesus on the mountaintop, we need Jesus on the valley floor as well. And so Jesus comes down the mountain with the few disciples that he had with him. And now we see this this, uh, pleading human father who says, My suffering son, have mercy on him. So we've gone quickly from a proud heavenly father to a pleading human father. In these two stories, uh, we see the contrast between divine majesty, the mountaintop moment, the glowing Jesus, and then human misery. It's quite the contrast between the mountain and the valley, isn't there? The message of last week, the message of the transfiguration is, was, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, so listen to him. That was the message of the transfiguration. The message in this story of unbelief that we're going to be studying is that faith in Jesus can move mountains, so talk to him. The transfiguration taught us to listen to him. This passage, I believe, teaches us to talk to him. Now, one little thing before we get too far, and as you even, you see here, uh, I've listed at the top 14 through 21, but then there's no verse 21. How many of you have Bibles? You could check right now that don't have verse 21. Verse 21 is actually not present in a lot of the older, uh, more original and better manuscripts of the original language. So older Bibles, I I checked, uh, I have a copy of my dad's 1981 ordination Bible, New King James Version, and it has verse 21 in it. Uh, But uh, we now think that probably verse 21 was not part of the original inclusion. So that's why we're only 14 through 20. I'll explain more later um, as we compare this passage to Mark chapter 9, a very similar passage. Anyway, This morning, I'm going to carry on by first giving an explanation, a bit of an exegesis of the passage, and then we'll finish what I believe is uh, how we can apply this passage practically. So let's start with the explanation. I've got three Fs for you today, and we have a, a few slides to help you follow along. The first point of the story is the failure of the disciples to heal. Verse 14, it says, when they came to the crowd, this is Jesus and the few that were with them on the mountain. A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples. And here it is, the key failure, but I could not heal him. The, uh, the Greek word for these seizures is uh, is is like a a word that we use for epilepsy. So these are epileptic seizures. Translated literally that word that is used to describe these seizures. Some of your translations may even say that he has epilepsy translated. Literally this is the word is moonstruck. My son is moonstruck. This is where we get our word for lunatic. Whenever or however. Whenever or however, people lost control of themselves. The ancient people saw evil spirits at work. We might say lunatic, they would say possessed. Verse 15, he often falls into the fire or into the water. This is, uh, this is a picture of self-destructive behavior. I, I thought to myself this week, what if we saw our self-destructive tendencies as a form of demonic possession? This is how the, uh, the ancient people would have seen this. What if we saw alcoholism, pornography, addiction, self-hatred, worry, anxiety, consumerism, greed, workaholism, covetousness? You name the self-destructive behavior. What if we started to see these behaviors as types of demonic possession? And we, we've advanced, haven't we? we? We don't look at everything as a type of demonic possession. Possession. We have psychology to explain this type of demon-possessed behavior today, but this behavior is no less maddening, is it? When we're owned by a destructive force, life stinks, to put it nicely. But here's the good news. Here's the good news for us today. No matter what we call it, no matter what we call the it, we can rest assured in one thing, Jesus is Lord over it. And this is what we learn in this story. We we don't need to know the names of the demons. We don't need to know if it's a psychological disorder or a demon possession because all we have to know is the deliverer. We don't have to know the name of the demons, only the name of the deliverer. And we know that name, don't we, church? Jesus, the central figure. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah that we've been looking towards. It's not so much about what we call out. It's about who we call on in these situations. I think the meaning of the gospel exorcisms that we've seen and the ones that we're going to see can be put into three words. Jesus is Lord. Lord of lords and king of kings. Jesus has dominion over it all. This is incredible news. Incredible news. So in verse 16, it says that they've, They've brought him to their disciples. He says this. The father says this. I've, I brought him, my son, to your disciples, but they could not heal him. This is a, a puzzling statement, isn't it? I mean, why? Why could they not heal him? In Matthew 10, remember back just like a number of months, we studied Jesus' sermon on mission. It says in Matthew 10, 1, that Jesus called his 12 disciples uh, to himself, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and every sickness. If they'd been given authority, why couldn't they make the magic happen? What's going on? Why are their attempts at, at healing failing? And I think this is essentially the question of this passage. Why? Why are their attempts at healing failing? And, and I, again, I think, like I said, to start, I can relate. Can you not relate to those, those attempts at healing and, and to the doubt that can creep up when you're like, ah, can God really do this? Would God really do this? Does he want to do this? I mean, sometimes if we're honest, I think that we can just start to believe that we, we, uh, <clears throat> we can just start to feel like the power isn't working. We see these stories as distant. They're somewhere off in a faraway land in a time long, long ago. Maybe God doesn't work this way anymore. That's a way that we can feel. Sometimes it just feels like the power of God isn't working. But here in this story about the disciples' unbelief or their failure or their lack of faith, we have a a really good reminder. The the disciples in this story, they're not exactly the heroes of the story, are they? The disciples are the ones who, who, despite the authority they've been given, can't seem to impart healing to this man's Son, I think this is actually a bit comforting. When I feel weak, when I feel incapable, I'm reminded of Jesus' closest followers who often showed great faith and often showed great failure. I think this is also one of the great reasons for believing uh, the truth of the gospel accounts, right? I mean, we bank a lot of our hope on the accuracy of these accounts, the truth of these accounts, and I just, I just want to say, you know, if, if you were fabricating a story like these gospel writers have put together, if you were fabricating that story, if you were making up that story, would you make yourself look so bad? It's hard for me to believe that these, these gospel writers would make themselves look so bad unless the story was actually true. See, because the thing that the gospel writers know is that they're not pointing to themselves. They know that they're pointing us to Jesus. Jesus. Their weakness, their failure doesn't matter in the light of Jesus' strength and power. So they were willing to to share this message, to share this testimony, even though it made them look bad. They went all the way to the grave looking bad, looking weak, looking like bumbling fools at times. You know, like Peter, the one who was pointing to Jesus and then just a little bit later, getting rebuked by Jesus, the one who was stepping out of the boat, and then just a little bit later, getting scared by the wind and the waves, the one who was the rock upon which the church would be built, and then also the great denier of the Christ. Can we not relate? Hey, look, if you feel like you've failed, if you feel like you haven't always got it quite right, join the disciples in pointing to Jesus. It's also just a great reminder that that though those, these disciples are often portrayed as weak and bumbling, we, we know that the promise of Scripture is that even though with man and the weakness of man, where there is uh, impossibility, with God, all things are possible. With man, there are impossibilities, but with God, all things are possible. So we have uh, some disciples here, those within the 12 who've, who followed Jesus closely, and yet they're still marked by at least a little bit of unbelief. So, so how does Jesus handle these disciples who uh, do not seem to have the faith to see a miracle moved in the life of this boy? How does Jesus respond to their failure? He's probably patient and kind, right? That's how he's going to respond, right? Like, oh, it's okay. No, that's not how Jesus responds, is it? Verse 17, we see the frustration of Jesus. This is an excellent picture into what gets Jesus upset. You know, we we've tamed Jesus, have we not? We've tamed him, like he, we, we've tamed the 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 kindness of Jesus into a, a man who never got upset, right? A man who is never like angry or visibly disturbed, a man who never like challenged people. But this is not the biblical Jesus. And here we see a window into the frustration. What makes Jesus frustrated? Man, I find myself often frustrated if I'm honest. And the, the question that I, or the thing that I also often think to myself is like, Noel, you should be less frustrated. You should not get so frustrated so easily. And I think that's me. It's probably true. It's probably true. But you know what I think would be the better question or the better assertion is, is Noel, what is frustrating you? And why don't you get frustrated at the things that Jesus gets frustrated at? I don't see a problem with Jesus' frustration in this passage. So what can we learn about Jesus' frustration? See, at the top of the mountain, Jesus has shone and glowed. Now here at the foot of the mountain, he moans and groans. Jesus has had it up to here. And uh, we see a picture of his humanity in his frustration. He's actually echoing similar words uh, that, that Moses used in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 you unbelieving and perverse generation. These are, uh, these are like the strongest claims, the strongest among the strongest rebukes that Jesus could make. But we also see divinity in this response. We see his humanity, but we also see the divinity in this response. I mean, evidently, the biblical God complains too. And we've seen that before too. Numbers 14, 11 says, The Lord said to Moses, The same thing Jesus just said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? What makes Jesus frustrated is unbelief. Unbelief gets Jesus really ticked off. And so he says, and I can just imagine the disgust, Oh, bring him here to me. Which is the same thing Jesus said when he needed the five fish and the two loaves. Oh, you disciples, you have little faith. You can't see what's possible with God in your midst. Bring them here to me. Whether the problem is insufficient resources or ill health, problems get solutions when we bring them to the person of Jesus. Bring him here to me, he says. Look, you guys, prayerlessness Not bringing our need to God is treason against God. It's not a small thing. Jesus is frustrated. And in a world full of idolatry, I mean, imagine the world that he's living in. Idolatry, wickedness, corruption. Can you relate? Yeah, I heard someone whisper. It sounds familiar. Yes, yes. So in this world with all this perversion going on, what gets Jesus to come screaming about this perverse generation? It's his disciples' prayerlessness. It's their unbelief, their lack of faith. This is what marks the world's perversity, according to Jesus. Unbelief, not politics, not even the the worst issues. I'm not saying there's not perversion. But what really gets Jesus fired up is unbelief. Let that rest on your heart this morning. I know we have a perverse world. I know things feel like they're going to hell in a handbasket. But we've also got a world full of Christians like you and like me who don't pray, who don't bring our most basic needs to God in faith. And Jesus, you guys, he's got no patience for the prayerlessness of unbelief. I was, uh, I was reminded as I was preparing, just uh, to give you maybe a little ex- a story, uh, there was a game this year my, my oldest son Gunner was playing in, and he'd not yet caught a pass in a game. And um, the team was way up in the game. They were up big time. Uh, so the game was decided. They were going to win. And they ran a play. Gunnar caught a touchdown pass in the corner. Uh, except that the official threw a flag and called offensive pass interference on Gunner. So it took away his touchdown. Now, his coach went ballistic. And just imagine the scene, right? It's 40-0. to Many people in the stands are probably thinking, Coach, what are you doing? Why are you so frustrated right now? But the coach had vision for more than just the scoreboard. You know what I'm saying? The coach had an eye on the culture of the team, the root that he was really trying to protect and nurture. And he knew that Gunner had been playing hard, doing well, and just hadn't found the end zone yet. So to the coach, this wasn't a small thing. This is a really big thing. You see what I'm saying, the coach had in mind not just the outcome of the game, but the culture of the team. He wanted to see a player rewarded for hard work. It looked like lunacy to see the coach. He nearly got a flag, the athletic director had to come and, and calm him down, right? Do you get what I'm saying? And yet sometimes we would be like standing back, like, oh Jesus, why perverse? These are your disciples. And yet Jesus gets frustrated, really frustrated. He calls him wicked and perverse, unbelieving. Dang, I want to start getting frustrated, not about what normally frustrates me, but about what frustrates Jesus. I want to be a church that gets frustrated by the things that Jesus is frustrated about. Anyway, at this point in the story, we've seen The failure of the disciples to heal, we've seen the frustration of Jesus, but if I'm honest, I'm still a little bit confused about why the disciples have not been able to see healing come to this boy. So let's keep moving. I think the third thing that we're going to see in this passage is a little bit of an idea of what faith actually is. It says in verse 19 that the disciples came to Jesus in private. Right, Because we, we all know that, right? That's where you ask your best questions. You're, you're too scared to ask them in front of the whole class. So you come privately to ask like the real question, the thing that you're really wondering. And so his disciples say, like, Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? Privately, they're asking Jesus. And this is the key question. Why couldn't they drive it out? He gives them the answer in verse 20. He says, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So why couldn't they drive it out? They'd been given the authority of Jesus. You see, the problem is not with the authority of Jesus. We see in verse 18, Jesus easily rebukes this demon. When Jesus speaks, the demon comes out. This is easy work, uh, For Jesus. I mean, evil is is strangely subservient to real authority. Strangely subservient to real authority. Jesus had no problem. The power of Jesus is not in question here. What's in question is the faith of the disciples. And if we're honest, this is this is our problem too. Our basic core dysfunction is our unbelief and we could point to a lot of symptoms like i need to get less angry you know this person over here needs to stop cheating stop speeding stop looking at things they shouldn't look at stop you know coveting what, whatever the the symptom of the sin is there's something that lies beneath it beneath all our sin i believe uh is unbelief and so Jesus calls him an unbelieving and perverse generation notice Jesus sharpest pain is that believers hardly believe this really riles Jesus up and, and it hurts not just Jesus feelings it our unbelief can hurt others perceptions of the church can it not because we're not what the world expects us to be we tend to think our biggest problem is, is so much shallower, don't we? We're looking at symptoms when there's a root of unbelief. And that's what Jesus is really fired up about because he knows, in a sense, he's like Gunner's coach, isn't he? He's upset about something way deeper than what's being seen on the field. He knows what's underneath, what's really important. And in this particular instance, it wasn't the scoreboard for that particular game. It's our failure to believe that God is who he says he is. This is our key problem. When we fail to believe that God provides, we overwork. We succumb to worry. When we fail to believe that God's design for sex is best within marriage, we lust, we view pornography, we commit adultery in all different ways. When we fail to believe that we're unconditionally loved, we hide our sin, don't we? We live in shame. We deny the freedom that comes from walking in the light. So we've got a faith problem. The disciples in this story had a faith problem. So what's the solution? Just a little faith, Jesus says, like that of a mustard seed. So there's a paradox here. We're still we're kind of getting more confused, probably. Wait up, Jesus, you said the problem was little faith. And now you're saying the solution is little faith. The problem and the solution seem super similar. I mean, what's the difference between the bad little faith and the good little faith? How do we turn our unbelief into a mustard seed? I know I found myself thinking that. How can I just get a mustard seed's worth of faith? I want to see that mountain moved. I feel perplexed. How, how can my faith be enough? <clears throat> I read this incredible quote this week uh, from a commentator. He says that when at first you don't succeed in your studying of the scriptures, you should try another gospel. When at first you don't succeed, try another gospel. So here we are in, in Matthew chapter 17, and at least I'm confused. Maybe you guys have it all figured out, but I'm like, oh man, how come they couldn't heal? This man. What's going on here? What's, uh, what's the bad little faith and what's the good little faith? I want the good kind, but I'm not sure how to get it. So there's another story of this account in Mark chapter 9. So we can flip on over to Mark chapter 9. When at first you don't succeed, try another gospel. That's a good buddy, uh, Bible study tool for us to learn. Uh, it says in Mark 9, Mark 9 29, at the end of the story, this kind can only come out through prayer. This kind can only come out through prayer. Well, that seems helpful. Why couldn't they cast out the demon? They needed to pray, it says in Mark chapter 9. So Matthew heard Jesus say that the solution was faith. Matthew's gospel includes faith. But Mark heard Jesus say that the solution was prayer. But I mean, if we're honest, is there, is there really any difference between faith faith? and prayer, right? I mean, prayer is simply faith expressed in action. Prayer is like faith breathing. Perhaps mustard seed faith is is praying faith or the faith to pray. Faith is the root and prayer is the fruit. Mustard seed faith is, is faith that says its prayers. Faith that brings itself to Jesus Bring him to me, Jesus said. Come to me, Jesus said. Listen, do you believe that God is who he says he is? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God can do what he says he can do? Mark 9 same story a little bit earlier on, 922 through 23. The father says this in Mark's account: if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responds, if you can. I've been told if is the biggest two-letter word in the dictionary. If you can, the father asked Jesus. And Jesus' response, everything is possible for one who believes. Just a little bit of faith brought to Jesus can move mountains. Look, I'm here to tell you, if you believe him just enough to say your prayers, you can see mountains moved. It's a mustard seed of faith. It's, It's not much. He doesn't say, if you have faith as big as these mountains, you can move mountains. That's not what Jesus says all it takes is a mustard seed. (laughs) Jesus is so gracious. I don't even understand the way that Jesus works. He's the most demanding person I've ever come in contact with, and yet the most gracious person I've ever known. High standard of grace, high standard of expectation. In this passage, we see that Jesus is so gracious. It's just a mustard seed of faith. That's all we need. It's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, your faith is not impressive, it's not strong, and it never will be, but no problem. Just pray like you mean it, and God will do the rest. Jesus' mounting moving illustration, it's, it's more about the power of God that deploys itself in the trusting weakness of disciples. Weak plus trusting That's the formula of faith. Weak disciples who trust a big God. This is the kind of faith that can move mountains. Jesus wants us to know that even our elementary faith, even our elementary prayer throbs with power. Simple prayers, simple faith are full of power when they're brought to the God whose power is limitless. The quantity of our faith does not equal the quantity of his power. We've got to get our minds around that, don't we? The quantity of our faith does not equal the quantity of his power. Even small faith, if it's certain and true and will bring itself to Jesus, can see miracles, can see mountains move. I've been struck with a concept called uh, realism this week. And uh, here's what I mean. Like sometimes maybe like you, I I struggle to believe for things that are unrealistic. I I have faith for uh, small healings like your cold or your cough or maybe minor bouts of cancer. But the really severe stuff, you know, it just seems like so unrealistic at times. It seems like this story should actually inspire us to contend for the unrealistic You know, praying in faith for the truly miraculous to happen. I think the the question about is this unrealistic? It reeks of skepticism, doesn't it? Isn't that the question that breeds doubt in our hearts? Is it realistic to hope for that? To want that? I mean, can he really do this? Isn't that what we're asking? That's the question behind our skepticism. Can God really do this? Is he capable? And that's the same question the father was asking in this story, if you can. But for the questions in our doubting hearts, I have another question. Answering questions with questions. That's how Jesus did it, isn't it? Here's the other question. Has Jesus risen? What makes you a Christian? Faith in Jesus, the son of God, who came and lived a perfect life and died in our place on the cross and then didn't stay dead, but resurrected three days later. This is the whole essence of what we believe. This is what makes us believers. How about that? Is that very realistic? That a man would live a perfect life That a man would be the son of God, born of virgin birth, and then rise from the dead three days after being crucified horribly. How realistic is that? If we have a problem with realism, we've got a big problem with our faith, don't we? We're the people who believe in the resurrection of the dead. What else under the sun is more unrealistic than that? I was thinking about our heart for skepticism because I believe that there does pervade a skepticism in our world and in our own hearts, if we're honest, that gets in the way of our faith. And uh, I, I talked a little bit at the start about this Asbury revival that's going on. I'm, I'm on Twitter a little bit. I tweet now and again, you know? And uh, I mostly just like to get my news from Twitter and hear what people are thinking and saying. And I have noticed on Christian Twitter this week, there are a lot of people skeptical about all these college students singing, confessing, and praising God. Oh, it's too emotional. Oh, there's not any preaching happening. It's just worship and singing. Oh, what is, it? What is the, uh, the theology? What's the theological stance of this Christian university? Why are people traveling to go see it? What are they, like spiritual tourists? It's all a show. This is the skepticism that lives on the internet. Are you kidding me? We have a bunch of college students who went to chapel on Wednesday, February 8th and have not left their chapel since. We can be so skeptical. It's too unrealistic, right? This is essentially the same thing that's being said. It's just too unrealistic. We're so skeptical. So what does this mean for us? What, what can we do with our unbelief? What do we do with our little faith? What do we do with our doubts and our skepticism? I think that there's a lot of application for us in this passage, and it, it's really kind of simple. Faith is expressed through prayer. And what is prayer? You know, we, we mystify prayer. I hear people say all the time, I don't know how to pray. I'm not a very good prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is bringing our most basic needs to Jesus. Prayer is conversation with Jesus, this knowable God-man. He's knowable. Do we have our minds wrapped around that? Jesus, the God-man, is knowable. We can talk to him. He hears us. We can ask. He invites us to seek And to knock. He invites our persistence. Wrap your mind around this for a second. Jesus hears you and wants to hear from you. He hears you and he wants to hear from you. He's not too busy for your little requests, he's not too powerless for your biggest requests. The knowable God, he's amazing. I mean, I just wanted to encourage you, you know, I mean, prayer can seem so complicated, but um, that's why with this Lent prayer, I mean, like, Meg and I were talking, I was like, man, I really want to pray. This Lent season, I want to pray. I feel like prayer has been on my heart, um, and uh, I want to be a church of prayer, a a people of prayer, that uh, just get before God and bring our biggest and our littlest requests to Him, and so I was, I told Meg last night, because she was like, we should just do prayer Sunday mornings at 9am. And I was like, well, we're already doing prayer Sunday mornings at 9am. That doesn't seem that significant to me, right? Something like that. I was like, that's not that that's kind of, yeah. What's the point? That's kind of insignificant. Right. But then I thought a little bit longer and I was like, you know what? That's actually pretty ingenious. We're already there praying. And now for this period of time, I'm just going to ask you to commit yourself in like a, a stronger way. So for 46 days, I think it's, Lent, we say 40 days, that's because it's 46 minus the six Sundays, because on Sundays you don't fast, you celebrate in the Lenten calendar. Anyways, so what I'm asking is for six Sundays, for us as a church to just renew our priority, to bring our needs to Jesus, to take this like breathing faith, our prayers before God. I mean, what could happen? He says that with the faith of a mustard seed, we could see mountains moved. Anybody want to see a mountain moved in your life? So come on out. We're going to pray at 9 a.m. Every Sunday morning until Easter. But you can pray on your own too. I want to encourage you. You know, just some some little things. I know prayer can be difficult when it's alone. I am just like you. I tend to fall asleep or think about my to-do list when I sit down to pray. But... But it doesn't mean we stop trying, does it, right? So if prayer alone is hard, I get it. So just like open up your mind to how we can pray. It's not always on two knees with our hands folded, eyes closed. That's one way we can pray for sure. But maybe for you, like prayer walks, have you, have you considered walking and talking to God, turning off your device, turning off the podcast, whatever noise, the music? Have you thought about journaling? I found great... Progress in my prayer life as I write out my prayers. I found great progress as I write out my prayers. It's a lot harder to fall asleep when my fingers are moving. Some of you are like poetic, you're artistic. Have you thought about writing prayer poetry? Oh, there's some of that in the Bible. (laughs) The book of Psalms, right? Oh, and that's a good idea. If you don't know what to pray, why don't you just open up the Psalms and pray scripture? that can help. I don't know how to pray. Look, there's a lot of people, a lot of Christian people throughout the course of human history that had no idea how to pray. So let's join them. Let's pray the scriptures. This is a great way to pray. Some of you are great singers. How about singing your prayers? How about taking a song that's ministered to your heart and that feels like your prayer? Singing it. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to demystify prayer. Prayer is just being in relationship with God. But I want to do something else in regards to prayer, and I want to tell you something that I think can really unlock a lot of power in your prayer life, and that's corporate prayer. I just said prayer. Corporate prayer. Corporate (laughs) prayer. There's a lot of weird R's in that two words. Corporate prayer. Look, I, I guarantee you guys, it is way easier to pray with friends than it is to pray alone. I have a high value for prayer in your own life, but I'm telling you, come and be with some friends and that'll help you get to Jesus in prayer. It's like exercise, right? I once read a research study that, that showed that if people were just accompanied in a room by somebody sitting in the corner, they worked out 80% harder, right? Camaraderie, just knowing there's somebody else there, it really helps. So I'm inviting you, 9 a.m. from now, and I'm not asking for your whole life. Let's just start with Lent and see what God does. 9 a.m. right here, we're going to pray. Corporate prayer. And then the other type of prayer that I wanted to mention, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, In all things, pray continuously. I call this always prayer. Did you know that you can be driving down the road, have a thought, and submit it to the Lord? You don't have to be sitting in a chair in front of a fireplace or a serene view to pray. Pray always, continuously, The line is always like connected. He's going to pick up. He's always listening. Pray always. It's so powerful. We got to demystify prayer. It's not scary. It is kind of hard. I'll be honest. So these are some of my tips. The last thing I want to talk about though is is, I think really an unlock. It's a key. And uh, let's go to Mark 9.24. This is that same story. Again, if if at first you don't succeed, try another gospel. I love this. This may be my favorite verse in all of scripture. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. In that story, Mark hears the father say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If our problem is unbelief, guess what? We have a father in heaven who's here to help us with our unbelief. So what is this man doing? He's not only praying by talking to Jesus, but he's confessing, isn't he? He's confessing his weakness. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Confession. Uh, I heard that this Asbury revival started with a call to confession. Mm -hmm. Students came forward and began confessing their sins at the altar And they have not stopped praying, praising, worshiping. How many days ago was that? It's like 10 or 12 days. Confession. If we confess our sin, if we confess our unbelief, he's faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us. And I believe that the cleansing, the redemption, that comes in prayer Through confession is the power that unlocks faith. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the whole life of the believer is repentance. What is repentance? But confessing your sin and choosing to walk in another direction. You guys, we should be a people of confession. We've all got things to confess. I guarantee it. I don't know much, but I know that we've all got something to confess on our hearts right now. It's this confession. The act of confession is what started what's going on in Asbury. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a people of confession.